0: Good evening, good evening. My name is Claire Diao. I'm a French-Djiboutian journalist, and I'm here to moderate the Q&A with Ezra Edelman. Thank you for staying the whole day. For the one who stayed the whole day, <laughs> thank you for the others who dropped in. Uh, Ezra was born in Boston. He grew up in Washington, D.C. He studied history, then worked for 12 years as a journalist on HBO. Then he directed four feature length documentaries about sports. The first one was in 2006, Brooklyn Dodgers, The Ghost of Flatbush. The next one was in 2010, Magic and Bird, A Courtship of Rivals. The next one was in 2012, The Curious Case of Kurt Flood. And the last one was in 2014, Requiem for the Big East. He directed OG Made in America, who's now running for the Oscars. Please welcome on stage Ezra Ederman. Yes. So
1: you see, there are you, people. You guys stayed. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. At the beginning, we think seven hours that long, but when we stay, it's like. 10 hours or 12 that's really let's not push it (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: let me know Um, where were you in 1994 and how did you first meet OJ Simpson case or OJ Simpson figure Uh,
2: well I've known OJ my whole life I mean in reality I was a, a football fan as a kid I had older brothers who were football fans and If you still, to this day, if you walk into my parents' house in Washington, D.C., there's a photo of my two brothers, and they're both wearing football jerseys, and one of them is wearing an OJ jersey. And so he was someone that I watched on TV, in the Hertz commercials, and in TV and movies, and so he was always a part of my life. And, you know, it was no different than in 1994. I was in college. I was at home for the summer. Um, Some friends were coming over to watch... Um, the ba- a basketball game, the NBA Finals, um, which takes place in June. It was the, the Knicks were in the Finals, which was, it doesn't happen very often. And so friends were coming over to my parents' house, and then we turned on the TV, and there's O.J. and the Bronco. And it was surreal, because I, like everybody else, thought, ah, I don't, there's no way that that guy could possibly be involved in that thing. And so I watched it for a couple hours and then I wanted to go watch the basketball game and that was that, I forgot about it. And so, you know, and then the next two years happened.
0: So you directed various documentaries on sports. What interests you on, let's say, sports career or sports hero and what's happened to them?
2: Uh, Well, none of my films, frankly, are really that much about sports. If you watch them, they're rooted in the world but they're all about um, sort of politics, race, um, they're actually everything but what goes on on the field. So I guess that's not what interests me that much. And so technically as this is a film that um, was commissioned by ESPN, which is a sports network, people would go, oh, is a sports documentary. I don't think it's a sports documentary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so when you came out with the story, well, uh, and you contacted a few people, because I know it's a huge work you've done. Uh, whether, like, hell no, not this story again, or well, thank you for doing it. Mo- no,
2: mostly, hell no, I don't want to talk about this. Um, but, you know, first of all, I want to say uh, the producer of the film, Caroline Waterlow, is here if she can stand up, because she's the one who, along with me,
1: I've been doing for a couple of years. Um,
2: and, uh, yeah, she, she knows more than anyone else how hard it was to get people to talk because, you know, having lived through this, having some of them been on TV every day and been a part of this trial, which was such a cultural fascination, um, and some of whom were, came out on the losing end, um, people just don't want to revisit this. Um, and some people hadn't talked about it for 20 years. And so we spent months, you know, trying to just... Um, get a meeting with somebody, have a conversation face-to-face to let people know that the story that we were telling was uh, much more deeper and, and wider than a story about a murder or a story about a trial that really what we were hoping to do was tell this story about this city and about the country um, and that had a lot more to do with you know factors outside of the courtroom than what took place inside the courtroom. And, you know, in, in many ways that it's history that they're a part of and you know, I think that was an argument that some people were, thankfully, swayed by.
0: In the movie, there is a time cover called odysseys uh, and an American Tragedy," but you call it "Made in America." So, do you think there is a link, or what did you want to say about this title?
2: Um, well, the title—I'm going to have to give credit to another one of our producers, Tamara Rosenberg, who is French. So she <laughs> she appreciated. Uh, sort of who O.J. was as a character and, and got it right. I mean, look, everything about this story, um, you know, as far as O.J. and how he came to be, you know, in the time where you know where he's from to where he went to school to how he became famous and the path that he took to what happened in terms of our fascination surrounding his, you know, the the trial in '94 '95, to even you know the last sort of you know more farcical. Surreal saga at the end. It's only in America. It could have been only in America, but I don't know how many people you know uh, know Don King. He has a patent on that. But he. Uh, but it's made in America. The only, uh, the, only in that country could a story with this. It's it's that weird and rich. Um, could a character of, of OJ like OJ be created? So that's why it's made in America.
0: I'm sure there are a lot of question or reaction. So if you want to talk.
1: Uh, what, just wait for the microphone, it's coming. Because I people upstairs. Yeah, I don't know his name, I can't recall his name, but I'm very curious what happened with the black prosecutor.
2: Uh, Chris Darden. Um, yeah. He has his own firm now. Um, he was an example of someone, um, I guess, obviously, who did not want to participate in the film. No. Um, and I tried desperately to, to get him to participate. In fact, there's four main people in the prosecution. And I was, you know, very aware that it would have been, it was going to be difficult for um, to get any of them to talk. And he was the one person, if I had to have one person, that I really hoped would be in the film. And you know, he, understandably, wasn't interested. I think more so than even the three others, it was especially um, transformational and traumatic for him. So it's unfortunate, though, because you know, as a guy who grew up in Oakland. Uh, outside of Oakland, California, and he idolized the Black Panthers and he you know and he worked um sort of in this SID unit trying to prosecute cops and and then to in turn be the one that was sort of denigrated um during the trial for trying to prosecute another black man. You know his story embodies the the weirdness and the irony of the of the whole tale. So it's unfortunate um, that he didn't participate, but he's fine. You know, he has a firm and he's doing well. And you can see he still does TV, and doing other stuff, just not this.
1: And one final question: uh, Did you have any contact with uh, O.J.
2: during making this uh, documentary? Um, no. I I, have, I wrote him uh, an email in jail and uh, requesting an interview, and I never heard back. And so I have never had a conversation or with O.J. at all.
0: Other reactions, comment, question there? Thank you very much. I think it's um, it's a fascinating but also disturbing picture that's being uh, drawn there. And I would like to ask you, because, well, Black Lives Matter is present-day kind of protest movement um, pointing at the racism in the US, still present. Do you, do you think this, this picture that you have drawn through this um, documentary, says also something of today's US. Is it still there? Has anything really changed? I mean, I think you answered the question. I would
2: like (laughs) to hear your answer. I mean, my my answer is, uh, I mean, I think this is honestly the third time someone asked me today, you said the more things change, the more they stay the same. And yes, that's one of the themes of this movie. There's nothing needs to be pointed out specifically to the present day to understand that this is about America today as much as it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago, and sort of the continuum of history um, that we live through where we don't, where in some ways we evolve, but in many other ways we don't. And so it's hard not to, for me, to have made this film and or for someone to watch it hopefully and not realize that this is, you know, is talking about today as it is about any other period during the film.
0: And just jumping on that, uh, there were trial of Bill Cosby, or right now Nate Parker, uh, the director of Birth of a Nation. How do you see that? It's still violence against women, but at a point it's like community is against the, the person at that.
2: Well, that. Well, sorry, I want to make sure you ask me a question because I don't want to say anything about Cosby and Nate Parker. No, the, the difference perhaps of trial or
0: um, the media treatment.
2: Well, I do, I do think that might be a place where we have evolved a little bit um, in terms of, you know, we talk about questions of, of race and gender and that when two um, high-profile um, African-American people like um, Bill Cosby and Nate Parker, you know, in the same way that OJ might have been was given the benefit of the doubt in many ways, they haven't been there. They're sort of, their feet have been held to the fire for those actions. And so in that way, you know, that makes one's, you know, question if the result, if this trial had happened in 2016, the results may have been different because of where we, the discussion we now, um, you know, sort of have surrounding domestic abuse. Um, and so I think the outcome might be different.
0: There was a question here? Not anymore? Okay, other reaction, question?
1: Yes, the question was just asked, that you couldn't interview everyone that maybe you wanted to put in a movie. I was wondering if there was any moments of Kill Your Darlings. So, was any moments where you're like, I really want to put this in, but it's going to disturb the storyline.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the wonderful thing of making a movie that's almost eight hours long you just <laughs> sort of <laughs> want to put something in the movie, you just put it in the movie. Um, there, was, uh, there was probably there's a couple scenes that you know, we had cut that I liked that um, were taken out and you know, somewhat for the reason that you said you know, that you know, I, I think I was very conscious um, of the fact because of the, because of the length of the movie that it had to never stop it had, everything had to sort of flow from one scene to the next one idea to the next and there were a couple things that where I thought were entertaining and even interesting that sort of, you know, might have taken you out a little bit and so there was for a couple, you know, a couple times times um, with that scene because of that. But, but by and large, everything I wanted in the film is in the film.
1: And then what was your like, most, your favorite part or your favorite moment? Because I already have my favorite moment. What is your favorite moment? <laughs> um, well, definitely my favorite character, I would say, that, my character, my persona. I, I bet
2: I could guess if I wrote it down. <laughs> OK. Oh, but you're not going to tell him the truth. <laughs> Joe Bell. You have to help me remember who was. He's his childhood friend with the raspy voice.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that right? Well, he was, he was definitely interesting. Oh, he's not your favorite. Who's your favorite? No. It was uh, the woman that at the end admitted that said, that, Well, I did. Oh, Carrie this. Bess.
2: Oh, Carrie, but the, the juror. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah I like Carrie. Right. Because I, I like the fact that she, she she could see through it and admit it, and then like
2: look in with retrospect and. What well, is? It's I'll tell you my favorite. I mean, it's interesting to say about Carrie because, you know, we there's 66 people in the film, um, and we interviewed 72 people, and it's one of those things where considering the you know that amount of people, how long the film is, you can say to yourself, then, well, if this one person weren't in the film. Probably wouldn't matter, but then you start to sort of think to yourself, you know, what if Carrie Bass weren't in the film? That would have a very specific impact. What if Joe Bell were? What if Ron Ship were? And there's probably 20 of these people that it wouldn't be the same film if they didn't participate. And so that's just sort of that's the sort of the weird alchemy of making a movie like this, even with how big it is. Every single person truly, in my mind, was impactful. Um, but to answer your question on my favorite part of the movie, I think my favorite part of the movie is. Um, the scene in the last part you just watched with the radio host Wendy Williams, um, where OJ goes in there and she's sort of skeptical of one interview because she believes guilty of murder. And then by the end of that dynamic, you know, OJ has her, you know, eating out of his hands. And like that to me, just sort of the power of his charm. Um, and you can see that. You can see the effect he has on people in this very short dynamic. And for some reason, that that always gets me because it really speaks to what, you know, sort of ha- the power of celebrity and what we're willing to forgive when faced with that um, charisma. And so that scene always gets me. I think there. Uh, wasn't
1: there, microphone is there,
0: Wasn't there an outrage in America when he was sentenced for 33 years? Because that was a bit steep, of course, and I couldn't understand it, uh, America always. Claims to be the biggest democracy in the world, and this was just getting back at him.
2: Well, considering there was a much greater outrage when he was acquitted for murder 20, you know, 13 years earlier, I don't think people really cared. I think you know, you know, the notion of uh, was it a miscarriage of justice based on the crime he committed? Absolutely, but I think a lot more people believe in karmic justice, and so I don't think that people really care that much. So. about what,
0: what you were talking earlier—is uh, there any juror that you um, also interviewed, um, but didn't show in the documentary?
2: Oh no! I, th- I would have. The jurors were, you know, as, as much as I'm talking about how difficult it was to get members of the prosecution and talk. The jurors, by and large, um, they were easily. Illegal. A lot of them we couldn't even find these, and they don't talk about this or haven't. And that we managed to get the two that we did. Um, was, you know, extremely fortunate. And so, you know, I feel the fact that as great as Carrie is as a voice in the film, if she were the only juror, um, I would have actually had a problem with it, sort of journalistically, because there's already this feeling on the part of a lot of people, I'll just say in general, if not America, that what happened was you just had a, a group of a predominantly black jury who acquitted someone because of race. And to sort of know that, so there's nine black people in the jury, there's eight black women. And so the notion that there are two black women in the film who thought completely differently in terms of why they came to that decision, for me, was very important. So at least within those 12, there was a diversity of opinion, which was the most important thing. If we had had another juror or two, I would have absolutely included them. But unfortunately, no one else would talk. Yeah, I think it was good that
1: it was women woman uh, juror, because as a
0: woman, I would have just... Um, if I were a juror, would have said guilty just because he beat his wife, and um, and my <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, but uh, it was I think it was very interesting that to see that two black women would not even take that into account that it was the wife. Well, one
2: of them did, the other yeah. one did. Yeah, she
0: did, but still she said she could.
3: Action. Action. There. And oh, there and Thank you uh, also for being here uh, and coming to talk to us about your movie hype over here. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, I have a, a, bit, a, a question also about characters that are in the movie and that aren't. On the grapevine I understood that uh, Kim Kardashian's mother, Chris Kardashian, was actually a very close friend of Nicole Simpson. And, of course, Robert Kardashian being one of his lawyers, I was just wondering whether leaving that out completely, because I think it also sort of broke up their relationship, or that's all very gossipy, of course, but I was wondering whether you <laughs> deliberately left that out because you didn't want it to be Kardashianified, or if that was just something that you didn't find interesting.
2: Well, as a role, I would really like to have nothing in my life kardashian <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say that, uh, and I probably have a general distaste for if I could avoid... Um, the Kardashians. I will try to avoid the Kardashians. <laughs> Having said that, I mean, we had a little sort of thing at the end just to sort of, end, you know, Robert's in it. Um, we did reach out to Chris Jenner to ask her to do an interview, and she said, no, I can't say I was that unhappy. And <laughs> that was that. So, I mean, look, I think that uh, I don't even know the rumors of what happened. I mean, apparently O.J. is, you know, the father of one of her daughters. Sure. Why not? Um <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, that's the end of that story. I have nothing more about the
1: Kardashians.
3: (laughs) Thank you for this impressive documentary. Um, Has your opinion changed about OJ after making this documentary?
2: Started doing this about sort of the crime itself. Um, I guess, you know, honestly, I just, and it's even though I already had certain opinions, I, if it's possible, I probably like them less, if not much less, after making the movie. Um, but without going into any more detail than that. <laughs> there was a question here.
3: that Babel's being interviewed, and he says, uh, the question, no, I think you, I, if you are interviewed. Yeah, me, I asked Okay. Him. So you asked him, uh, so you used the OJ case to,
2: to for the civil rights movement. So you, you turned OJ Simpson into a civil rights cause. Exactly. Do you, do you regret that? And then he
3: said, uh, yes, I used it for our case. Uh, if you refer to yourself as African-American, sorry for that, but how did it make you feel? our case when he said that. Oh our Arch- cause? Uh, um yeah, because you know, for our so cause. Yeah. Exactly. Because it speaks to the question of racist mm-hmm. politics and people being a fan of OJ just because he was black. So how did that remark make you feel?
2: Oh I mean I you know it made me feel I mean personally it didn't make me feel anything. I mean as far as Danny Bakewell went as a longtime civil rights activist who, you know, expressed his um Distaste in many ways for the choices that OJ made, for him to have arrived at a place where he's outside of a courtroom when OJ was being tried and all of a sudden using him, you know, for again, for the causes he has been fighting for. To me, it just speaks to the richness of the story, which is, you know, in some ways, OJ actually, in the end, is, is, is a soldier, even an unwitting one, you know, so he's being used in this fight that he never was interested in participating in. On the other hand, there's something about Danny Bakewell who has, you know, it's a question of you spent your whole life doing this, but, you know, as soon as there are this many cameras around and it's this thing, you sort of will sort of be there as a sort of, you know, an activist, sort sure for yourself in many ways. Um, but the fact is, I think he, you know, he's a complicated figure because I think if you asked him personally what he thinks about the case and what he thought about OJ's guilt, he wouldn't tell you, he'd still be really cagey about it. And so I think that um, he, <coughs> I'm trying to think of the best, I mean, I know, yeah, I mean, I just think it speaks to the sort of, the surreal nature of what this thing became, and that with all of how, who OJ who was and what he represented, sort of that we went that far to the other side, that here are these people that he had sort of steadfastly avoided and now were very much a part of this circumstance. Um, I mean, that's all that was to me, frankly. But to me personally, I mean, it was just a a good answer to a question. Mm -hmm. Another question,
0: reaction? There, no? I'm trying to phrase it well, but do you think that um, using this case as a platform for the for the civil rights movement to like fight their their cause like he said that it might have hurt it because it was more of a crime of further retru- uh, retribution instead of the real injustice that that was going on uh,
2: sure, absolutely and I think that if um to look back and to see the investment that was put into this trial, and in in terms of it's completely understandable, um, the emotional attachment to um, the desire for OJ to be innocent and the belief in his innocence and the celebration of his acquittal, even if it had nothing to do with him personally. But I still feel like, especially now looking back, on on many levels, it it is a very hollow victory. And so that there is that much energy put into something and that much energy put into him as a political cause, however much it had to do with him specifically, or you know stuff beyond. Yeah, I think it was a, a misused um, amount of energy. There was a question in
0: front of the. Lead. Hi, hello.
1: Thank you for making this documentary very uh, impressive and a big view on on uh, history.
0: I missed what happened to the to the truck driver that was attacked. Maybe,
2: yeah, Maybe. back in nineteen ninety one Reginald yeah, Reginald, the, yeah, Reginald Denny. Uh, Reginald Denny was um, I mean he's I mean he was permanently he he had brain damage um, from the, the injury, he went to the hospital for a long time and he and there was a trial for the for the men who um, attacked him and they all received some form of punishment. I can't tell you exactly what the punishments were, but I mean, he's, and and forgive me, I think he's still alive and living in Los Angeles. I can't tell you more about him. He's alive.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. There was one other moment I was, uh, that's still in my mind. There are many moments, but the woman that shot the dark girl woman. Oh yeah. She was she was not from America as well, so it was so special that
2: uh, I thought she was from Asia. So she's Korean. Korean I don't know if she was Korean American, I don't know if she was a citizen, but Yeah. Did you look after her or connect to her or No, I mean that was a choice that again that's along the lines of, you know, in terms of where I wanted to sort of go out to the story. Yeah. Um, I you know, met with Latasha Harlins's uh, aunt, who was her, her uh, yeah, aunt, um, who um, was closest the closest family member to to her. And so, as far as for me, in terms of the way I was talking about all those incidents throughout the film, you know, I think you've noticed that I don't really go and talk to anyone's friends. So that was a choice that I made to not sort of, um, you know, sort of go down that road to talk to the the victims or families or people involved personally. You know, they were sort of part of the landscape of what was happening politically in the city. So that's why I didn't talk to um, Soon-Jadu or try to talk to Soon-Jadu or to anyone in Latash's family.
0: Other questions?
3: Hi, me again. I was the Kardashian question before. A different one now, though. Um, About the Kardashians? Yes, that was me before. I won't do that again. Don't worry. (laughs) Uh, This is about you as a maker of a movie that's uh, not predominantly about race, but largely about race, and race being a very sensitive topic in the United States and increasingly also becoming so in the Netherlands. Actually, that's not quite a true statement. I think it always was, but it's being more outwardly... uh, It's more outward now. Uh, I don't know if you identify as any kind of race, and I always find these uh, identifications complicated anyway, but I was just wondering... Did you run into any sensitivities as the maker of this movie yourself? And were you very conscious of, of your own presence and, and th- your own sort of identification? And did you get a lot of criticism or not? Or how, how was it received in terms of you making this movie? about race? <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not asking that, I just want to make it very clear because I understand the laughter of course, but I'm not asking that to be sort of critical of you. I'm asking that because I've noticed that when people do comment on discussions about race or talk about these issues, they often get a backlash themselves. So I'm I'm just wondering how that was for you.
2: Um, First, I would love the luxury of just not defining oneself racially. Um, I mean, I'm biracial, uh, half African American, uh, half Jewish, and uh, you know, the answer to your last question is no. I've gotten no blowback or criticism for Certainly, anything on the, on those lines. I mean, to be frank, uh, who, you know, who I am from a you know from a racial standpoint, you know, is something that I thought a lot about in terms of how people responded to me. Um, as far as this specific alchemy of talking to people that you know about a story that was this divisive and in many ways binary between black and white, and so. Look, if I'm talking to black people, they understand um, my worldview, and you know they know I empathize and understand their history, and that's so they're comfortable talking to me. If I'm talking to white people, I don't know. Maybe they don't realize they're talking to a black person when they're looking at me, <laughs> and so maybe they're more comfortable talking to me. That's a thought. I don't know. Um, the fact is, uh, it worked in terms of people being open in a way talking about race and in some ways talking about race more openly than I thought that they, many people would in some ways sometimes saying things that I couldn't believe they were comfortable saying in front of me and that's maybe one reason why I said the thing before about maybe they just didn't realize who they were there talking to um, but you know and besides that you know who I am sort of speaks volumes to how the story is told the way it's told and the choices that I made I feel like there's no such thing as I've been saying to people that, you know, I had no agenda in making the film, which is true in so far as I wasn't trying to, you know, sort of relitigate a, a crime, but, like, my agenda sort of is within my worldview, And so when I looked at this story, this is what I saw. This is what I saw in terms of um, why people arrived at the opinions they had and why people were so entrenched in those opinions. And if there's a way that I could look at each side and understand and empathize both sides on both sides and then let people speak for themselves and maybe you watch this film as long as it is and you take yourself through this emotional journey and you come out on the other end. And, you know, again, it's apt that this is being um, shown as part of a program called Shifting Perspectives because that's the point. If you come out of this and your perspective about this event that we all seem to absorb very obsessively 21 and 22 years ago, if your perspective has changed deep and wide. <coughs> then, you know, it was, it was worth every minute of it. All those minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right there.
1: <coughs> Hi, um, I was wondering what is your view about the um, development of the, the personality, if you will, of O.G. Susan? because in the first uh, part of the movies, this happy-go-lucky, everybody loves him, and then, you know, what happened, basically? <laughs> What's your view about that?
2: <coughs> I mean, I think what happens in the movie.
1: No, I know that, but I mean, how how did he go from, I don't know, yeah, I know what happened, but how did he go from being a happy, uh, you know, all-American superstar, um, yeah, and committing, yeah, to slobbering his wife, basically?
2: I mean, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> I mean, that's the why you guys sat here for 13 hours today or ever long, because it doesn't make any damn sense. You know, it's like, you you know, know, how does a guy who has it all end up doing that? I mean, the, you know, it's like up to you as much to make up your mind about this as it is for me to tell you. I mean, you know, fame's intoxicating, um, entitlement's crippling. I think it's sort of, you know, these sort of, Dynamic that sort of built that sort of I, you know, what built up in him and that sense of power and control. And you know, again, I can't, I don't know the guy. You know, all I can do is sort of offer the story that I offered, and hopefully, you get a sense of maybe why that happened. Maybe you have a better understanding of how this was possible. You know, a man in a story that on his face makes no sense, but if you live with him and you look at it a little, cl- a little more closely. You might get an understanding of how that was, how he was capable uh, of doing that, and so you know, I don't know that I know that much more beyond what you would have, um, what conclusions you would come to having just watched the film.
0: Talking about movie making, uh, there is a great variety of materials in this movie. What did you start from, and did you do everything at the same time or different periods on different? Like archive, collection,
2: or interview? Um, I mean, I think first with something of this, that's this massive, I mean, you know, before you do anything, before I did anything, I just tried to get my hands on everything I could read to sort of figure out what the story was and what this history was and try to make connections on my own before I ever thought about, you know, what to do archivally. Um, Having said this, I knew the film was going to be based primarily... In these voices and in archival footage. Um, and so, you know, that's always a chicken and egg process of, you know, these people you want to talk to based on. The, I'm, I'm very story driven. And so I'm trying to basically figure out the beats of the story and the narrative and frame it for myself before I go out and talk to people. And especially in some, you know, as you said at the beginning, with a story like this where people are reluctant to talk, it's even more contingent upon you to have thought this through completely. So when you call these people up, who have been called up hundreds of times by people, you really have a sort of deep, nuanced take on what you're trying to do. So fundamentally, the interviews and the story comes first, and the archive sort of serves, um, you know, the narrative. But then you you ultimately, and this is where Caroline's incredible um, and our uh, producer Nina Christic, who's our archival um, maven. I mean, they find you know, they they come up and find this incredible material that can also drive what you end up doing. Create stories and themes unto themselves, so it works both ways. Now, it also with this, you invariably come across things that there aren't, you know, there isn't footage for. Them. And so then you just have to figure out a way to convey the story in a different way, be it the story of O.J., you know, playing craps in the bathroom and talking his way to the other principal's office in high school. And so it's like, oh, we have to shoot some form of a reenactment, which is not something I've ever done. But you know, you figure it out. Or I want to convey the city of Los Angeles in the separation and what this sort of the landscape looks like. The best way to do that is through this aerial footage. And so that's something that you arrive at however many months into the process because you know that's an element that's going to be um, just key to understanding the landscape um, in which the story is taking place. So it's kind of all well So, how many time for the entire
0: shooting, editing, and uh, release?
2: about two years.
0: So. Worked hard. <laughs>
2: we, we all worked
0: hard, yes. Other question, reaction? Yes.
2: Yes, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for the movie. for it was uh,
0: really impressive. Uh, second, I'm really interested in the uh, children of OJ. Uh, well, they, I didn't see any interview with them, so I assumed that they uh, didn't want to participate in the movie. My question is: uh, did you contact them, and do you know how they feel about this whole case? Uh, are they still in touch with their
2: father? What do they think of the whole uh, case? I don't know. <laughs> um, we, uh, we try to come. The one person, you know, I, I specifically really didn't want to interview his younger children. Um, I feel like they've been through enough. Um, Uh, And so strangely um, one of our producers did have a conversation with his younger daughter Sydney who wasn't very happy that the film was being made not surprisingly just because this is her life and it's her family and it's being dredged up time and time again Um, she didn't really I think that how that even conversation happened was very strange I think she generally doesn't engage with any of this Um, and she's the only one of the children that any of us have any contact with Um, there was sort of a, a an attempt to interview Arnell, who is his older daughter, um, but that didn't go anywhere. And I think you'll notice a lot of his inner circle and his family is not in it because, you know, they just generally don't talk about this. So I, I can't speak to what their opinions of, you know, about the case, the trial, his guilt or innocence, any of these things. Obviously, it's a very strange, fraught topic. Thank you. Are
0: there reactions coming. Uh, regarding this shifting perspective we know there was Brexit there is Trump, there is the extreme right wing uh, winning or more and more famous in Europe and uh, there are a few documentaries in the US right now uh, 13th by Abad Verne and I Am Not You Negro by Haitian director Raoul Peck do you think that the end of President Obama had an influence on all those topics coming out, per, perhaps to, I don't know, where they rush something to talk about issues that perhaps next election will not
2: allow. Um, well, I can't speak for Raul or Eva. I mean, I mean Raul, as, as you probably know, <coughs> has been working on that phone for 10 years, so that was before Obama. Um, and I know how I was working, which it was not with any others, like sort of who was in the White House would not have changed this story. So whether I was asked to do it five years ago or five years from now, I would have told the story in exactly the same way. You know that there are stories by um, three black directors at this place in time and talking in some, all about race in some form. You know I don't know what the the reason for that is, um, but it's a good thing. You know that's that's what I have to say about that. So thanks a lot for attending. Thanks a lot. Thank Enjoying you for thanks coming. for coming, everyone, and thanks for saying. Yeah.